does picking an outfit have you running a little too fashionably late? We get it. Great taste takes time. That's why Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery, has your back with the largest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, delivered in under 60 minutes. Convenience never goes out of style. So if you need to spend some extra time in the mirror instead of at the store, download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. It never dawned on me how much walking I used to do until I bought a house in the suburbs. Like when I'd say, I'm going for coffee, of course I was walking. But now it's like three miles and no latte's worth that. I find myself inviting people on walks with me like it's a scheduled activity. This morning, my neighbor asked me what I'm doing, and I actually said, I'm going for a walk with Nancy. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 127 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, the one and only Edgar Winter, I want to remind you about the online store at mistresscarry.com. As we roll into the holiday season and you start checking off people from your shopping list, the online store at mistresscarry.com has a little bit of everything for everyone. Hoodies and beanies to keep you warm, t-shirts and tank tops to wear to your favorite concert, coffee mugs to help you make it through the morning, and you can also up your cocktail game with the brand new 7-in-1 Mistress Carrie Bartender Set. Think of it as a multi-tool for a mixologist. It's got everything from jiggers and a muddler to a strainer, knife, and corkscrew, plus a zester, a spoon, and a bottle opener in one bartender's multi-tool. And it pairs perfectly with the Mistress Carrie pint glasses and shot glasses. And in the next few weeks, a bunch of new items are coming just in time for the holidays. So if you don't know what to buy that person that seemingly has everything, just head to the online store at mistresscarry.com. My guest this week is an absolute rock and roll legend. Founding member of the Edgar Winter Group, Edgar Winter, who's best known for songs like Free Ride and Frankenstein, was not the only musician in the family. Award-winning blues guitar player Johnny Winter was his brother. And recently, Edgar Winter released a tribute album in honor of his brother called Brother Johnny. Edgar Winter covered songs that he and Johnny played as kids, covered some of Johnny's biggest hits, and wrote a couple original tracks for the album as well. And he recruited some huge names in music to help him out, including artists like Joe Bonamassa, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, Billy Gibbons, Joe Walsh, Michael McDonald, Ringo Starr, Steve Lukather, Warren Haynes, and even the late great Taylor Hawkins. I talked to Edgar Winter about his upbringing and growing up with his musical idol, his brother Johnny. We also talked about the making of the album and how he got such a star-packed lineup of artists to help him with the project. We also talked about his musical journey, his thoughts on songwriting and guitar tone, and we talked about the never-ending list of instruments that Edgar Winter seems to be able to play. He is an absolute legend, and it was my honor to talk to him. So allow me to introduce you to the one and only Edgar Winter. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Her hair is so lovely. 
Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your bra on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stain, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to... You have the privilege of listening to Mistress Carrie. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. What an honor and a privilege, Mr. Winter. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm ready to rock and roll. Yeah, you are. Uh, are you home? Is that your home studio? I love it. Welcome to Winterland. Yes, uh, here's my trusty vocal mic and my keys here. This is where the album Brother Johnny started. Uh, I did all the vocals sitting right here and played all of the original keyboard parts that were sort of the map to the original recording so there you go. this is uh incidentally beverly hills so i'm the authentic beverly hillbilly out here <laughs> <laughs> you um sit down when you sing vocal tracks uh sometimes but usually stand up uh it depends on the song and uh just the way i'm feeling that day but it can be a combination of either. Some things seem more comfortable uh, one way and some the other. So it's not a specific thing, but I would say probably at least 75% standing up. A lot of people are moving out of California from the record business and moving to either Nashville or to Texas. You moved out of Texas and went to Hollywood. Well, I went to New York originally. So uh, I moved to New York right out of high school and uh, lived there for 20 plus years. And uh, then my wife Monique and I moved out here to California around 1990. So I've been here over 20 years. Just wanted to get away from the cold weather? Well, that and uh, in all honesty, I wanted to change my life. Uh, Just about everybody I knew there uh, was into drugs. And uh, I just, we both felt like it was time for a fresh start and a complete change. So uh, my wife, Monique, had been reading one of those Carlos Castaneda's books, Power of Silence. And uh, she woke up one day and said, we gotta, we gotta go west. And I said, I, of course, I said, well, I love it up here on the east side. What are you thinking <laughs> about moving to the west side for? The, speaking of New York, of course. She said, no, I mean west. Uh, where are you talking about? California. So here we are. Happy wife, happy <laughs> life. That's what they say, right? Yes, indeed. And on that subject, uh, as far as the album, Brother Johnny, there are three people that I want to thank before we even get into the minutia and details of the record. And those are my lovely wife, Monique, to whom I've been married now for 43 years. 
not bad for rock and roll. Yeah, that's especially good. Especially in California. And, uh, you know, I was undecided about making a tribute album. And uh, when, when Johnny first passed away, I had, uh, there was a lot of interest and I had offers from people and they would ask questions like, uh, how long is it going to take? And what guest artist can you guarantee? And I said, well, I don't know. I, I'm not even sure I want to do this, but it just felt like deal offers to me, like business people sensing an opportunity and uh, an exploitation of Johnny's name and memory just to sell some records. And I did not want to be uh, a part of that. And to top that off, I just was devastated. I wasn't uh, emotionally ready or prepared to to make that album at, at that time. And uh, as years went by, I began to realize it's not just record company people, it's Johnny's true loyal and devoted fans that that want to see this happen and you know it just felt like the universe was crying out for that record and when i asked monique about it she was very definite she said well you always talk about how johnny's your all-time musical hero and if it weren't for him you wouldn't be where you are today so here's your opportunity to acknowledge that and you owe it to yourself, to Johnny, and to the world. And she could not have been more right about all of that. And, uh, I, you know, if it weren't for her love and support, I don't think I would have had the strength and courage to embark on it and, and see it through. So uh, thank you, Monique. Uh, the second person is our engineer mixer, well, he started out as just the engineer and mixer, but uh, became producer and actually co-creator of the record. Uh, I'm speaking of Ross Hogarth. And Ross uh, had so many invaluable suggestions regarding uh, material and uh, various guest artists. Uh, some people that I was not uh, familiar with uh Phil X, for example, who is a Canadian player, a madman guitarist who plays with Bon Jovi. He replaced uh, uh, Richie Samboro, and I was not that familiar with him. Then he suggested uh, Doyle Bramhall Jr. Uh, to do the acoustic Delta Blues song that's on the album. Uh, he suggested John McPhee from the Doobie Brothers to play slide on uh, Highway 61. Uh, just the point being that it would not be the album that it is without Ross. And, uh, you know, he uh, he put his whole heart and soul into the record, more or less put his life on hold to do it. And the third person is Bruce Quarto, the president of Quarto Valley Records. Uh, and when I... When I met Bruce, that was the final thing that fell into place and convinced me that uh, that it was the right time and the right thing to do. Uh, Bruce, he believed in the project from the beginning and wanted to make the record for all the right reasons. He loved Johnny and Johnny's music, and he just wanted, he felt like this is what the world needs, and 
I had to make the record. I felt compelled to do it. Uh, it, it always had a, a sort of a sense of destiny to me. So that's more or less how it, how it began. Well, you're in a very unique position where uh, when we lose a, an iconic artist as fans, um, our emotions and memories are so attached to those songs and those memories of the concerts. Then there's always the family members, but you're in this position where you're not just his brother, but you were his musical partner your basically whole life. And so uh, paying tribute to him in a musical way, you know, you you had to be careful, not only, as you say, for the fans, but no one could pay tribute to your brother better than you. All of that, uh, everything you've said is true. And uh, I had thought that it might be emotionally difficult because I knew it was going to stir up all these childhood memories. Uh, I mean, this is the music that I grew up on. It's the music that Johnny and I played together since we were kids. And uh, it actually turned out to be just an uplifting, joyous experience and really changed my life in a way that I, I never would have imagined. You know, the first thing I thought was, well, should should this just be a straight ahead blues record, uh, you know, to honor, uh, you know, the, Johnny's memory and the great legacy that he left behind? Or should it be more of a personal tribute to Johnny and include some of my own particular personal favorites uh, to try to be more of a personal dedication from me to my brother. And I felt, well, it should be both. So that's what I tried to do to maintain a balance. So there were some songs that were really obvious, the, the Johnny's best known songs like Rock and Roll Hoochie Coo and uh, Still Alive and Well. Uh, that I knew people would expect to be on. And then there were songs that Johnny played, uh, like Jumpin' Jack Flash and Highway 61, that were, I guess, what you'd call cover songs. Uh, you know, Johnny loved the Stones, and he loved Dylan, that whole mystique. Uh, and those were, as I said, those were songs that we grew up playing that basically taught us how to play. Uh, then there was Johnny B. Good that has uh, an interesting backstory because I think people would sort of assume, well, Johnny Winter Tribute, Johnny B. Good, Chuck Berry, Rock and Roll, it's like obvious. But the reason for that song stems from uh, an incident when we were just kids, like we started out playing ukuleles, singing Everly Brothers songs, you know, when we were just kids. And uh, Johnny graduated to guitar, and it became evident to me he was going to be the guitar player. So I said, well, I'll just, I'll play everything else. So <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I've played bass for a while, and then I, I switched to drums, and then electric pianos came out when Ray Charles put out what I say. And... Uh, so then I 
picked up alto sax in my teens. My dad played alto sax in a swing band in his youth. But uh, anyway, th those uh, uh, I was speaking about Johnny B. Good. Uh, when we formed our first band, I guess I was about 10 or 11, and Johnny must have been like uh, 12 or 13, uh, Johnny and the Jammers. <laughs> and uh, there was this local talent contest, the biggest thing in the area. And the hottest song we knew was Johnny B. Good. So we entered this contest. We played the song and we won. And first prize was you get to make your very own record. So uh, there was a studio in Beaumont, uh, Beaumont, Texas, where I was born, called Gulf Coast Recording. And uh, uh, we went in there and Johnny wrote a song called School Day Blues and we recorded our first record. So thanks to Johnny B. Good, that was like the beginning of our professional career. Had it not been for that song, uh, who knows? So, of course, Johnny recorded it on his first uh, Columbia album and uh, that being the reason. And I felt like, of course, it had to be on this record. And then, and then why not just call Joe Walsh to have him come on the song too? No big deal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Joe was, I, I didn't think of any of these songs with uh, any specific artist in mind. The reason being, I didn't want anybody to play on the album and play a song that they didn't feel passionately about doing. So uh, I thought, Joe being a rocker, Joe and I go way back to the 70s when he was in the James Gang and we used to play shows together. And I thought, well, he's going to pick a rocker like Johnny B. Good or Jumpin' Jack Flash. And he really surprised me by picking Stranger, which is a, a beautiful ballad and totally uncharacteristic of anything Johnny would normally write. It's one of my favorite Johnny song and an example of what I was saying uh, it's one of my own personal favorites and probably one that a lot of people wouldn't be familiar with and might not expect to see but it's got a beautiful chord progression and so when Joe said that I just had had this I used to sing the song with Johnny and I wanted to sing it you know I wanted to sing it with Joe. I just thought he'd be the perfect guy. So I said, well, okay, why don't you play on Stranger and we'll just, we'll sing it. So he he agreed, you know, because he had said, well, you know, it's that traditional Chuck Berry. I don't know what I can bring to that. I love Stranger. That's the song I want to play. So I went over to his place. He's got a beautiful studio and we had our arms around each other. <laughs> go, go, Johnny, go, go, Johnny, be good. And it was just like such a warm, it just reminded me of when I used to sing the song uh, with Johnny. And uh, I hope that all communicates on the record. But anyway, you're getting an idea of how it all, it really took on a life of its own. And I have to mention Johnny's great songs, of course, like songs like I'm yours and I'm hers and mean town blues that uh, uh, they, th there's one thing that I feel Johnny uh, did not receive that uh, enough credit for. And that was his fusion 
of blues and rock. I mean, he was recognized as a as a great authentic blues player and and a great rock player, which he was. But those songs are perfect examples of uh of the fusion that I'm talking about. And the thing that was different, like there were there were just tons of great electric blues guitar players. And I think the thing that set Johnny apart was uh his love of the old traditional blues the old delta country blues like that uh uh you know that gut bucket back in the alley i used to call it back porch music like in the rural south where you'd see a guy sitting on the porch you know tapping his foot playing the guitar and uh he uh had a way like if you if you listen to mean town blues it's almost like one of those old john lee hooker acoustic riffs but it has the intensity and drive and elect electricity and power of of rock and i when i first heard it, how did he do that you know and uh so songs like that had to be on there as well but the point is it's just i thought uh it would take a year to make and and i told bruce that and it ended up uh taking three years of course it had not been for covid that I'm sure would not have been the case, but it, it really took on a life of its own and developed organically. There were so many twists and turns and things that came out completely differently than I would have anticipated. Joe picking the song Stranger as a perfect example. And uh, what I mean by that is after Joe played on Stranger, I I had been thinking about asking Ringo to play on something. And, and I thought, uh, he's never going to do this. I, I don't think he plays on that many people's uh, albums. But, you know, I we did, uh, I played in uh, 2006, 2008, 2010, 2011. Uh, I was honored to play in Ringo's all-star band. And I said, well, you know what what do i have to lose and i uh i don't know if you're familiar with this but uh uh ringo is married to the lovely barbara bach and barbara's sister marjorie is married to joe walsh making them brothers-in-law so i thought well now that i've got joe keep it in song, the family you know, yeah, keep it in the family, and and they play on a lot of one another's songs. So, I finally got up the nerve to call Ringo, and he said, "Edgar, I'll do it for you." And it just touched my heart. I said, "Ah, <laughs> oh, I can't believe this." Uh, and then after that, my wife Monique and I were listening to it, and I had put a scratch vocal on, sounded sounded good, and she just out of the blue, she said. You know, Michael McDonald would sound great singing this song. And it's as soon as she said it, I could just hear, hello, pretty stranger, that haunting voice, the, the way. No one sounds like Michael McDonald. Nobody. No. It, and to me, that's just a magical vocal. But like when you look at that song and you think, wow, Michael McDonald, Ringo Starr and Joe Walsh, what an 
an odd, interesting array of people that you'd never even expect to be on the same album, much less on the same song. So that's what I'm talking about, how uh, the album just took on a life of its own and, and, you know, things started to happen. Were you overwhelmed at the at the love for your brother by all the yeses you got from people that agreed to be on the record? Yes, I was uh, just this heartfelt uh, outpouring of love and respect was more than uh, I ever would have imagined. And uh, and it really, like, uh, after having done it, uh, I feel almost that I, I am closer to Johnny, that I know him in a way that, that I never had before. Uh, because of all of these uh, subliminal interconnections with people that I got to meet. A lot of these people were longtime friends, but uh, many of them were people who I might have played shows with, like on a multi-act uh, festival or concert, but uh, had never really gotten a chance to sit down and talk to. And they all had, you know, Johnny Winter's stories and uh, a lot of uh, people that I I just didn't realize uh, that Johnny had touched their lives in a way that that I never knew. And like, uh, well, another example, when I was talking to Joe Bonamassa uh, and I was we were on the phone and I was reading him a song list. And uh, uh, and once again, I thought Joe would uh, pick something different. Uh, and I got to this song that is an, another one of Johnny's more obscure songs, uh, sh- a shuffle uh, called Self-Destructive Blues. And as soon as I said it, he just lit up. He said, oh, wow, you're really going to do Self-Destructive? Man, that's the first Johnny song I ever learned. And I played that with my band. And he just got so excited. And when he came in, he had an old Firebird and uh, and a Fender Bassman amp, like the same gear that that we had back in the 60s. So he obviously was aware of everything. And man, when he started to play, I, I, I think of all the people on the album, uh, I never asked anybody to sound like or play like Johnny. My idea was that I'm, you know, I'm just going to find interesting people. I didn't want just the usual suspects. Uh, I wanted a more varied uh, cast of characters. And uh, and in, you know, in trying to do it that way, I just felt like uh, I didn't want to make a typical kind of a, a tribute album that just turns out to be more of a sound alike or a copy album. You know, I'm I'm never been a particular fan of tribute album. To me, I think well if you love the artist, you know, listen to the actual artist. Why do you want to listen to somebody trying to mimic or copy or sound like that guy? But that's so, what's different about this is that it's coming from your love of your brother. And that's what I was talking about earlier is that your perspective on this is completely different, and you're really the only person that could have put a record like this together for Johnny. 
well, thank you for saying that. Uh, and I knew that that was the case. And I was really surprised that nobody else had done one. Uh, it had been like, I guess, four years, three or four years since Johnny had passed. And uh, and just things fell into place in a way that uh, that it became obvious and apparent that it was something that I had to do for just for my own sake, for my own spiritual development, uh, I, uh, you know, I had spent years not making this record and, you know, like refusing and saying no. And uh, finally, uh, I said, no, the, the, the time has come. Uh, whatever that inner voice is that, that guides us, it was telling me that now, it's the time and you know it's it's not a record johnny would have made but uh i think it's the record that johnny would have wanted me to make for him and uh that's what i tried to keep in mind when i was doing it not does this sound like johnny but uh would johnny dig this would this be something that you know that would mean something to him Johnny used to encourage me. He knew that I, he knew that I loved uh, jazz and classical as well as blues and rock, and uh, and he always encouraged me to follow my heart, and that's one of the reasons that I I wrote two songs specifically for the album. One of them, Lone Star Blues, and the other, End of the Line. And Lone Star Blues, I tried to write in Johnny's voice. But uh, end of the line, when I got toward the end of the record, I realized, well, there are all these great Johnny songs, but they're, they're, there's nothing that's in my voice. There's not a real Edgar song on here. And on every album I make, I try to do a song that expresses my deepest, most inner, my deepest, innermost feelings uh what i'm going through at that particular time to me like albums are sort of a slice of life a snapshot of, of where you are at any particular time and uh in that song uh i tried to i tried to capture that uh the last verse says uh songs may end or just fade away but the music never dies Stars may shine and burn in the night. Here on earth, we hear their cries. Referring to not only Johnny, but all the great people like Jimmy and Janice that uh, have gone before. Uh, uh, but I'm standing. Uh, I'll keep standing after all this time. I'm standing at the end of the line. And when I started to write the song, I thought, oh, well, end of the line. That's kind of bluesy. Everybody knows what that feels like. Uh, as I started to write it, I realized, oh, I'm writing about the winter line because Johnny and I were the last surviving winters. Neither of us have had children. And uh, so that puts me <laughs> as the last winter at the end of the line. And that was a, that was a real realization for me. And, uh, and, I think it's a good way, you know, to end the end the record. And I did it in a very classical 
style. Uh, it's the only song really that's not a blues or a rocker. And uh, and I did it purposely for that reason. Uh, I actually, uh, I remember when I heard Paul do Yesterday with just like the, that, uh, you know, uh, string quartet and and him playing the guitar and singing. I just love the intimacy of that. And I said, that's a great way to approach music. And uh, I thought, I'm, I'm going to do this song like that. I'm just going to play the piano and have the strings. And then Ross suggested, well, why don't you have the band come in at the end, which we which we did. And it really, it really gives it a, a great lift. So I like the fact that uh, that it goes through all you know that evolution and uh, so there there you have an idea of uh, of what things were like. Well, this album is a tribute to your brother Johnny, and for the better part of this year, the rock industry has been paying tribute to someone that appears on the record, um, Taylor Hawkins. Obviously, can you talk to me about what it was like working with him, and was he? A surprise for you that was someone that wanted to pay tribute to your brother. It, yes, uh, to all of that. Um, what happened there was uh, the song "Guess I'll Go Away" was a song that Johnny wrote just before he went into rehab, and it's sort of a cautionary song. It's uh, the lure of sex, the danger of drugs, the love of rock and roll. So it's sort of a, a typical uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll song lyrically. But uh, to me, out of all the songs on the record, and there, there are 17 of them, this one is the most rocking. It seems like a sort of a, a typical sex, drugs, and rock and roll song but being the most rocking song on the album i mean it rocks like van halen or foo fighters it's not like old style blues rock and roll i mean it's really a heavy rocker and i thought because of that that it should have a younger more modern vocal approach and when i was talking to ross about it he suggested Taylor Hawkins. And I said, oh, wow, Foo Fighters, man, that's great. And I never would have thought, I never would have thought of Taylor. Uh, another example of uh, how Ross uh, would come in with these amazing suggestions. So I had never met Taylor. And when he, when he got to the session, what struck me was he just had this intensity and he was so focused and so together. And it felt like to me, this is a guy, it made me feel like there was nowhere else on earth that he would rather be than right here at this particular time. And like I tried to engage him in a business discussion and he would not hear of it. He said, Edgar, I love Johnny. I love this song. I, I really identify 
with this song. I don't want anything for doing this. I just want to get out there and rock. And man, rock he did. And it just, uh, you know, when I when I think about it, it's just so ironic that he would be doing this tribute song to somebody that he obviously loved and had this special feeling for and would then pass away in such similar circumstances, you know, out on the road in a hotel room. And it's 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 like a, a tribute within a tribute. And I I just wish I had had the opportunity to get to know him and to thank him as he so deeply deserved for what he did on that song. And every time I hear it, you know, uh, when it, when I listen to the record, I always think of Johnny. And when I hear that song, I see Taylor's face alongside Johnny. Uh, and it, it's it's a beautiful tribute and uh, I think a very special moment in the record. Well, it's a, it's a tantamount to, <clears throat> as music fans, what the songs mean to us, that that is the only connection we'll ever have with you or your brother or Taylor is that musical legacy. And so to have these songs that your brother did now done by you and the people that loved and were inspired by his music, there isn't a better way to pay tribute to that legacy. And it just shows, like I said before, the the people that are credited on this record they're all legends and and the greatest at what they do and the fact that they all galvanize together to to work with you on this project of love is is a huge statement to your brother's legacy well thank you uh, for for all the kind words of uh compliment and encouragement and uh you know i really uh i love this record uh i I don't usually listen to my own records. To me, it seems like the height of self-indulgence. But when I put this record on, it gets me every time. Like it, uh, as I said, these this is this is the music that I grew up on, and it's almost as though it's it's not really my record. It's it's Johnny's record. I'm one of the guys that that plays on it, but. Uh, I trip out on this record and and it always takes me back of course being Johnny's brother and it's going to affect me more deeply than than the average person uh but uh everybody that I talk to uh seems to feel that that it does have a special quality and a special resonance about it and that's certainly what I wanted it to have just to express my love uh, for Johnny and and for all of these people to come together, as you mentioned, in this unique way. It really touched my heart. And I want to thank each and every artist, you know, for for their heartfelt contributions and just great, great solos. Uh, you know, I wanted this not only to be like a tribute to Johnny, but to the blues and to the guitar. I wanted to make a great guitar record. And uh, 
if you take a look at that guest list, which I don't know if you have one uh, that that you could read, but uh, well, uh, Joe Bonamassa, Joe Walsh, uh, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, Warren Haynes, Derek Trox, Steve Lukather, uh, uh, Bobby Rush. He's a great Chicago blues man. Michael McDonald, uh, Ringo Starr, uh, John McPhee. Uh, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, I don't know if I said. Uh, Robin Ford, who played with everybody from uh, LA Express to Miles Davis. Uh, and the list, you know, goes, the list goes on and on. Uh, uh, oh, David Grissom, I should, another, another guy that uh, Ross uh, suggested along with Phil X. But David is a great Texas guitar slinger. And when I was talking to Ross, he said, have you ever heard of this guy, David Grissom? He said, any of these songs that you're talking about, he has that Texas vibe. He can play any of these songs with the right feel and the authenticity that you would expect. And man, was he ever right. He played, uh, since I couldn't talk Joe into doing guitar on Johnny Be Good, uh, David, David did the honors there and he really like he had listened to the Chuck Berry version and Johnny's version, and he did a great synthesis of that. He also played all the uh, uh, he played all of the rhythm parts on "I'm Yours and I'm Hers," and uh, that had, of course, the bodacious uh, <laughs> Billy Gibbons, yeah, you know, and 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 then Derek Trucks. And two of Johnny's, Johnny loved Warren Haynes and Derek Trucks, you know, when they played in the Allman Brothers. But that was a song like, uh, uh, like, as I mentioned, having been married to Monique for 43 years, I'm not going to be, I'm yours and I'm hers, somebody else's too. You know, I'm not going to be singing that. So I thought, well, who would be the perfect person, you know, to sing, and then I thought of ZZ Top and like songs like Tush and Leg. Can't mistake and, those uh, vocals or that naked, guitar yeah. sound. Yeah, and uh, so his vocal is so gritty and down and dirty. It's like the perfect, and then he plays like that one of those classic ZZ Top solos. And then Derek Truck just comes in burning with the slide. He takes it into a whole other dimension he's a very unique slide player uh in uh he he loves eastern music like uh sitar and he's very accurate sometimes he plays the slinky sleazy style blues but he also has an accuracy sometimes plays almost like a slide or a sitar like a slide a pedal steel player or uh, or a sitar player and man it just it just really raw. So uh, that's a, that's one of the highlights of the album to me is the guitar interplay between Billy uh, and Derek is really something amazing. And then you've got like uh, David Grissom. He's sort of like the glue holding the whole thing together. He's on there from start to finish uh, playing all of, all of the lines. So it really is a beautiful chemistry guitar wise. Can I ask you a guitar question that I ask a lot of guitar players and you know, you're naming these amazing names on this record and obviously grew up playing with your brother. Um, 
Where do you think a guitar player's tone comes from? And and why uh, is it so yeah. hard for anyone else to replicate a guitar tone of another artist? Well, a guitar is a very individual instrument. And they're like the answer to that is so complicated. Uh, first of all, it depends on the guitar uh, that you pick. And guitars each one has a completely different character even two les pauls are never going to sound the same or two fender stratocasters are never going to sound the same but those are my two favorite guitars and i think probably most people and those guitars like uh from from like the late 50s and early 60s they sell for like 30 40 50 thousand dollars they're like the Stradivarius of, of the guitar. So that has a lot to do with it. Then the amp that the person chooses, uh, a lot of guys like to play with a big stack of Marshall amps and uh, recreate that live on stage power feel. Some guys will play with like a little Fender Bassman, like one of those uh amps with with a uh, you know a couple of 12 inch speakers uh and you you can get those smaller amps to distort and sound overdriven in a really cool way without having to get such excruciating level you know by turning up a big stack of marshall and then everybody's touch on the guitar is different everybody sets the tone the tone's different because you've got tones, uh, tone knobs on the guitar. You've got pickups that you can switch close to the neck or close to the bridge. And then you've got tones on, on the amp. So it's really an infinity of different possibilities. Uh, and obviously the, the person, the tone that they decide on, like uh, Johnny always played with, tons of treble and uh he wanted to cut through and you know when we were kids uh playing in bands and the main thing we wanted i want to be loud you know and he would crank up the treble and it would just like would knife through you and uh that was the sound that he liked uh and you know it's as I said, it's just very individual. It depends on the person's personality and their approach uh, to the instrument. But uh, uh, yeah, it's it is uh, really cool to hear. Uh, you know, uh, there are certain guitar players that uh, have an instantaneously recognizable thing about uh, about the way they play, like Carlos Santana, for example. As soon as you hear it you know, it's him. Uh, but thanks for the question. Um, I want to ask you this songwriting question that I always ask songwriters. I'm very envious of the craft and I can't do it myself. So uh, I'm fortunate enough to be surrounded by experts in the field that I can pry for these answers. Can you give me an example of any song from any genre from a songwriter's perspective that you think is a perfectly written song? that you wish you wrote it because it's so brilliantly crafted, but then tell me what's so brilliant about how it was written and put together. It could be oh, your brothers. It could be any so, genre. Yeah. 
so many, so many answers to that question. Uh, and yes, there are, uh, I think, uh, for me, uh, my method of songwriting, I, I get ideas when I'm in that alpha state, either just dropping off to sleep or just waking up, coming into conscious awareness in the morning. And I've dreamt many songs, written songs in dream. But, uh, like, I, I'm tempted to say, uh, I think Billy Joel is a great songwriter and uh, songs like, uh, uh, I love you just the way you are. Uh, there is a perfection to that song. It's, uh, I think it's just written beautifully musically and, uh, it expresses a beautiful heartfelt message. Uh, and, uh, I would cite that as an example, but then, you can say somebody like Bob Dylan, the songs that he writes that uh, have a like a sort of a subliminal, like he doesn't like to think of himself uh, as an activist or saying anything political, but a song like uh, God's on Our Side talking about how we tend to depersonalize uh, the enemy, whoever that might be. And uh, we all uh, we all think in war that God must be on our side because we're only fighting to defend what we believe in. Uh, and, you know, uh, those are two of the examples that uh, that I would give, but there, I think as far as songwriting, the Beatles have to be uh, the Beatles to me. Uh, their musical catalog and the songs that they've written. I mentioned yesterday before. Uh, to me, that's you know that's another kind of a, a perfect song, uh, and. I think they were bigger than music. They changed the mindset of an entire generation and they brought about a revolution without having to fire a shot because it was a revolution of the mind, of the heart. Uh, it, it's all about uh, peace and love. And uh, uh, I'll say a few words about Ringo here. Uh, his advocacy and outreach for peace and love is something that I tremendously uh, respect and admire and something the world uh, has all too little of and needs more of. And, you know, uh, I is just such an honor to get to play with him and get to know him. He's, you know, not only the greatest drummer and the greatest band that's ever been, but uh, he's just a cool guy. He's just so natural and spontaneous uh, and like very quick witted, always ready with a joke and a smile. And, uh, you know, it uh, 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 just getting to see how off and on stage, he has a great sense of humor and, uh, you know, sometimes sharp tongue, but always in the spirit of love. 
and uh uh you know i just we just finished uh you know a couple of tours that had to be canceled because of covid i got it the first time and then uh the guitarist steve lukather came down with it and then this last time uh ringo contracted it and you know people talk about oh covid's over with well you know we couldn't sustain tours uh but that doesn't mean you can't try we just have to uh you know it's a different world now and hopefully uh the miracle of medicine miracle of modern medicine will come up with something to combat it eventually but it just meant the world to me to get out there with Ringo and play again after all of these years and uh you know I did uh, Frankenstein and Free Ride which I've done you know that I always do my biggest hit but then I told that little story about Johnny B good you know and and I just I went down into the anarchist in New Orleans and I looked back there and it's Ringo just fashion. I mean, he's just killing it. He was doing that swoosh, swoosh, swoosh thing he does on the hi-hat that I haven't seen him do since since the Beatles. And, uh, you know, it, I just like, uh, I, I'm just going to uh, carry those memories with me forever. The, the thing that this reminds me of when I was playing with Ringo on his 70th birthday, we were at Radio City Music Hall and there was this surprise for Ringo's birthday that he didn't know anything about. And we had walked off stage and we were coming back on for the encore and walking toward me is Sir Paul McCartney and Joe Walsh and uh, Paul straps on his half narrow. Dun, 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 dun. You say it's your birthday! And I just flipped out. I just said, I can't believe I'm here playing with Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr. Uh, I mean, whoever would have dreamed that a kid from Beaumont would ever even get to meet some of the Beatles, much less share the stage with him. So, you know, those those memories will stay with me for the rest of my life. Well, you bring up Frankenstein and you may not listen to your own music, but we <laughs> listen to your music all the time. And especially this time of year, you can't have a playlist or listen to music around Halloween without Frankenstein being in there. Gotta be. Yeah. 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 Was Halloween something that you and your brother liked growing up? And and what was a, a year where the Winter Brothers absolutely killed it with costumes do you have a favorite halloween story with your brother mm, not really but we loved it we used to trick-or-treat and uh i had a a, a glow-in-the-dark skeleton suit that i love and I, I kept that for uh as long as i could before i before i grew out of it uh we didn't we didn't play any horrendous tricks on anybody but uh uh rather you know than talking about halloween uh it's interesting that you would bring up frankenstein in that connection because it was a song that uh that i actually wrote uh the riff to and it's an example of how a song can just sort of materialize uh nobody even knew johnny had a brother he invited me to sit in with his band 
and he'd play the first part of the set with uh, uh, with his blues trio. And now I'm going to bring on my little brother Edgar, and I'd walk on and ah, oh, no, there's another one. Like <laughs> it was, <laughs> you know. And I said, well, that's a cool bluesy kind of riff. It's really easy. And so uh, we used to call it the double drum song because I'd play Hammond the organ and then I played an alto sax solo. And then I did a dual drum solo with Johnny's drummer, Red Turner. So we played the song and completely forgot about it for years. And then when uh, I discovered synthesizers and uh, and I just happened to be the first guy looking back on my career, like if I think of meaningful things, I think one of the things, uh, my idea of putting a strap on the keyboard, really, uh, it really uh, was a huge change. Like, uh, it certainly changed keyboard world. And I think, like, people, I had become so frustrated being stuck behind a big bank of keyboards. And uh, you're like, nobody can see what you're doing. And you're chained to one spot. So... It's a simple and obvious idea uh, just to put a strap on the keyboard. But before synthesizers, there was really not much of a way. You're not to do putting that. a strap on a Steinway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so all of a sudden, people could see the keyboard, see what the guy was doing, and relate it to the sound that they were hearing. So uh, it really changed the face of music in a way. There started to be lots of bands that would. Feature. I remember we played a show with Billy Preston, and then like three weeks later, I saw Billy on TV, you know, doing it. And I said, ah, <laughs> oh, this is, yeah, this is going to catch on. But uh, then, like, uh, after we, we had no intention of recording the song. And it was like at the end of the project, and I was talking to Rick about it, and we just happened to accidentally have these. Uh, super long, like 20, 30 minute versions of the song. It was just so much fun to play and we were playing it live, but we never thought of putting it on a record because it was so long. And we, we'd come into the studio and just warm up with that song. And back then the cardinal rule was tape is always rolling. So we had these long versions. He said, maybe we could edit that into something uh, usable. So I thought, well, that's a crazy idea, but I love crazy ideas. <laughs> so it was a good excuse to get even more blasted than usual and then have a big end of the session editing party. So back in those days, the only way to edit something is to physically cut the master tape. I and grew like, up in school. That's how I used yeah. to edit audio in the beginning was with a razor blade well, and a grease go. pencil. So yeah. you know. And yeah, you can do a safety, but it's a second generation. It's like cutting a diamond. If you mess it up, it's it's gone. So anyway, it was lying all over the studio, like draped over the backs of chairs and overflowing the console and on the couch. And we were trying to figure out how to put it all back together. And somebody, well, here's the main body here. And Chuck Roth, the drummer, mumbled, the immortal, the immortal words. Wow, man, it's like Frankenstein, you know, drawing the analogy of an arm here and a leg there and pasting the thing. So the monster was born. 
Uh, if I ever wonder why I was born with zero musical talent, I'm going to blame it on you because you got it all. Is there an instrument you can't play? Uh, I don't play any of the, like, violin, viola, cello. Uh, uh, I, I'm i sure that I could, but those are, uh, because they're, they don't have frets, you know, and uh, it's... Uh, very meticulously detailed to to play one in tune is really hard so i just thought that's not something uh that i'm going to spend time my the reason i picked up so many instruments was because i wanted to arrange uh and i, I loved like a lot like uh the great arrangers like um uh, Oh, I listened to all the Ray Charles uh, songs and his stuff was big band and all of the old Frank Sinatra things. Uh, and uh, and I wanted to have a working knowledge of all of those instruments. So, you know, when I was in high school, you know, I played a little trumpet and I played trombone and I played all the saxes, alto, tenor, baritone, soprano sax and uh, clarinet and flute. Uh, Wait, you played clarinet similar. too? That's the only thing I ever played growing up. Yeah. I finally well, got a clarinet player on the show. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> Johnny, Johnny played clarinet before I did. And that that talent contest that I was talking about uh where we not only won uh we not only won uh the first prize of making the record but there was a uh, there was a Boulevard watch, and uh, Johnny, of course, wanted the watch. So he was playing clarinet, and he said, "Hey Edgar, uh, for your share of the watch, I'll trade you my clarinet." <laughs> <laughs> so I took the clarinet and, and started playing that. Johnny got the watch, and there you go. When you have <laughs> the rest is history. <laughs> when you have all of those instruments that are all so different in a lot of ways, I'm really curious for someone like you that just has an inherent musical ability. When you listen to music or you're writing music, do you see shapes, colors? Do you see numbers? What is it in your head when you're crafting a song and playing instruments that's going through your head? Uh, the shapes, colors, only when I was taking acid. <laughs> but, uh, not uh, like there uh, are some musicians any... that have synesthesia. Like there are some people that say Hendrix yeah. had it that he could see yeah, colors yeah, yeah. in the notes. So, mm -hmm. do you see? Well, I've had that experience, but. Uh, <laughs> but what i'll say about that is when i write uh i don't like to write with an instrument like uh like i like i feel like uh if i sit down at the piano then i'm gonna start uh i i'm going to play uh ideas that relate to that particular instrument like they're gonna sound like billy joel songs or elton john songs they're gonna be piano songs because you tend to fall back on the repetitive uh, patterns of things, it's going to influence the way I write. Or if if I'm going to write a guitar song and I'll pick up a guitar, even though I'm not a guitar player, but I uh, uh, I know so much about 
guitar, having watched Johnny. And like I know uh, lots of advanced uh, jazz chords and stuff that uh, that a lot of people, I know a lot about guitar, even though I don't play it. But uh, I just don't, I don't like to write that way. I like to write entirely out of my imagination and just uh, empty my mind it's a lot like meditation to me. It's very Zen-like, and just uh, uh, allow uh, that free flowing. You know, just uh, tune into that, the, whatever that universal thing is. I to me, music is a very spiritual uh, thing, and there's something that happens like when you're on a stage playing to an audience. Or you're in the audience listening to a great performer. Uh, music takes you out of yourself. And uh, I, whenever I'm doing music, like sports people will call it being in the zone. But whatever it is, in that moment in time, all your cares and worries and everyday affairs just fall away. And you're you're just there. And... Uh, that connection uh, that you feel when that happens uh, on stage or, as I was saying, uh, in the audience, uh, when you're listening to some great piece of music, uh, I always feel like I'm part of something beyond myself. And, uh, and I love that feeling. And that's really, uh, I've just always loved music, the beauty of chords and melody and harmony and rhythm it just uh it's it's an amazing world uh and i was completely different johnny johnny was gonna be a star ever since i can remember like he was johnny cool daddy winner with the pompadour and the shades and the guitar and the girls and uh and i never particularly wanted to be famous i just loved music in and of itself and uh, uh that was one way in which we were very different but uh he reached out to the world with his music and i sort of escaped into my own private musical world uh he was the extrovert and i was more the introvert and uh, I'm I'm just rambling now. No, I'm I'm that, fascinated uh, because well, you're that, a very no. you're a very specific um, example because the musical ability runs through your family and because you and your brother were so close. Yet your approach to music was so different. To me, it's fascinating. Well, thank you, Carrie. Uh, uh, as I said, I'm just kind of ramble on like a like a country road. <laughs> you can ramble but, all you want, Mr. Winter. Absolutely. I don't know if you've seen the record, but this is, this is the uh, inner, uh, this is my wife, Monique and myself and our, our little puppy dog. Oh, wait, Angelique. I have to ask you about the dog. Geezer Butler yeah. got me asking everybody what they name their animals because he names yeah. all his dogs after gangster rappers. Did you know that he did that? No, I did not. <laughs> so now I have, I have to ask everybody what their dog's names are because of Geezer. So you put your dog in the record. What's the dog's name? Angelique. Aww. Angelique. The Princess Maltese. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> and here, if this is the vinyl cover, and if you see, oh, it shifts, it shifts between Johnny's image and and mine, depending on the angle that you look at it. That's really uh, cool. And see, here's us uh, playing ukuleles when we were little kids up at the top, and uh, and then us middle aged and us older. Does it surprise then, you that vinyl is back as much as it is? Yeah, it does. Uh, and here's a, like a whole bunch of of our childhood pictures inside. It's really a. Uh, it's. I got the idea for the, the uh, reticular cover. Uh, I thought. I remember these old buttons that would have something like, uh, "I like Ike," and then you. Tilt it slightly, and it'd be a frosty glass of coke. And <laughs> I said, "Whatever happened to those?" And I thought, "Well, I mean, if we could have, I could figure out a way to design a cover that would shift between our images, because you know, I don't think we look. People used to say think we were twins, and there is a family resemblance for sure. But uh, I think that we we look." different but i thought it would be magical if if you could just shift it and then see us like uh metamorphose from one to the other is so, that what it's called venticular is that what you said venticular yes venticular is uh it's a process it's like uh 3d but uh there are little beveled like uh little beveled pyramid shaped uh uh, it's the texture of it so it's reflecting the light from one picture and then when you change the angle then it reflects from the other side you know of that pyramid so you get a different image well uh, the... but it yeah it's oh, an interesting that... process and and uh uh you know when i pick up this album like i just showed it to you but uh i get this almost otherworldly sense of connection. And of course, it's going to affect me more since it's my image and, and Johnny. But everybody that I've spoken to, that uh, it's something that you can't, uh, that you you have to experience it. But I would, I'd get the record just for that cover. It's well, that's what I was going to say. The album's available digitally. But getting yeah. it on vinyl gives you the ability to look at that big photograph and to be able to see all the family photos through the years that you put in the bifold. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I love yeah. vinyl. And I love that it's back. I, I love it, too. And I'm so glad it's back. And I wanted to make the record. I remember what that was like. You know, I like I hated it when CDs came out because part of the just the joy and the experience you'd go out to a record store and you'd come home and you'd look at the cover and fold it out and and you you know it had um, oh i i wrote all the liner notes uh as well so that booklet that i just showed you with uh with monique angelique and myself is uh a detailed uh account of the the whole story of the making of the album uh and uh, so you'll you know you get a lot by that's there's a booklet in the cd as well so uh you know and i guess we have uh talked a lot about it but just in closing i'd like to mention this 
uh, as a, uh, just to wrap it up, uh, I I had mentioned Johnny's drive and determination uh, when we were kids. I remember one one afternoon we were sitting up in our treehouse in the backyard that our dad had built for us, and Johnny was just kind of staring up into the branches, and and he looked at me and he said, Edgar, I'm going to make it one day. I'm going to be big. And you may not believe it, but you are too. And I just said, uh, he's just he's just talking. But then he said, I I want you, I want you to remember this. Remember this day and remember what I said. And I do to this very day. And it's so odd the way memory is, certain things for no apparent reason will stick in your mind. But I always felt like uh, because of uh, Johnny and I were inseparable as kids. And we not only had the bond of music and a brotherly love, but of uh, albinism. Both being albino gave us a different sort of mindset, a different, uh, a different world view. And I always felt like no matter how old I get or what has happened in my life or where I am, how far I end up from home, there's one person that will always understand what uh, what I've been through and uh, what my life was like. And that person is my brother, Johnny. And so in that spirit, I dedicate the album, and I just want to thank all of our fans who have followed my career as well as that of Johnny throughout all of these years, and uh, we could never have done it without you. We love you all, and, uh, uh, you know, it's meant the world to us to be able to do what we most love and see you all out there rocking and having a great time, so... What more can I say? But keep on rocking. Well, I am in that group of fans, and uh, I'm just so grateful for the generosity of your time and your willingness and and your openness talking about your life and your brother's life. And, you know, the the fact that we will always have those songs is the most powerful part, is that that legacy will always be there. So thank you so much for talking to me today. You are entirely welcome. Peace and love. (laughs) (laughs) To quote the great Ringo Starr, peace and love. That's right. There he is, the one and only Edgar Winter. His album dedicated to his brother Johnny Winter called Brother Johnny is available everywhere. And if you check the links in the show notes of this episode, you'll find this episode's corresponding playlist, which features a ton of the songs from Brother Johnny, as well as hits from Edgar Winter, Johnny Winter, and all the artists that we talked about in this episode. You'll also find the links to find Edgar Winter online and the links to find me online as well. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus you get the sit rep. The Situation Report is all of your rock news and entertainment headlines every weekday, and it's all in just five minutes. Plus, you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode. 
Check out the official Mistress Carrie online store at mistresscarrie.com for all of your early holiday shopping needs. And make sure you check back for the massive Black Friday sale. Join me live for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room, every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern on my official Facebook page. And you can always listen to the Mistress Carrie radio show. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never thought I'd care about gardening until I bought a house in the suburbs. But now I find myself in conversations about liquid fertilizer, and I wonder, am I the fertilizer guy now? (laughs) No, no way. Everyone knows the ratio between phosphorus and nitrogen, right? Yeah, I'm still totally cool. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. At The Home Depot, we're dedicated to helping you build the skills that get your home projects done right. That's why we offer free and interactive online DIY workshops. During the live streams, our knowledgeable associates help you tackle your DIY projects no matter your age or skill level. You can learn how to install new single-pole switches, as well as standard duplex and GFCI outlets. Register for free at homedepot.com workshops. The Home Depot. How doers get more done.